good if you like uh, today normally we'd start with a, some kind of illustration or story but I want to kind of pose a question at the beginning why does Hebrews chapter 11 verse 32 uh, suddenly place Gideon there in a list of others uh, that the writer of that book commends as men of faith in that passage, the writer lines up, as you probably well know, a venerable bunch of people, uh, men and women, to encourage the reader of that letter uh, to press on in their faith. These are examples of faith. Yet you look at Gideon and you do wonder, we haven't read chapter 8, do read that when you get home and you'll see why. You kind of wonder, is it a mistake? Should he be there? Gideon, of course, as we've heard already, is famous for putting down fleeces of wool and asking God to do a miracle. Well, actually, two miracles in that, in that chapter there. Um, but then he, he puts the fleece down uh, overnight and the ground is to remain dry and the fleece wet and opposite the, for the next time. Gideon is also famous. He goes into the battle we just heard in chapter 7. It's extraordinary, is it? Trumpet and torch, that's it. And he wins this huge battle against this vast army of Midianites. But it's that tension between those two chapters, I think, where Gideon, on the one hand, needs these vast assurances from God to do anything. And yet, on the other hand, in the other chapter, the following chapter, he walks into battle with hardly anyone against a vast army with just a trumpet and a torch. One hand needs vast assurance. On the other hand... Amazing faith as he walks into battle. So how are we to view this man? I mean, what are we to do with him as we, as we read through this story? Are we to aspire to be the Gideon figure as you go to the bank tomorrow? Be no. hmm. Are we to honour and revere him as a great man of God? Or are we to kind of say, well, we're not sure, look down on him a little bit? Well, let's dive in. Let's look at the story. And uh, it begins with chapter 6, as we've seen there. Flip back to that if you can. With that inevitable, and now, it should be, kind of wearisome cycle, as we've seen, as we've gone throughout Judges. The people sin. We see that at the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1. God sends a raider. This time it's the Midianites. The people cry out. God provides a judge, or a deliverer. Same kind of word there. And there is peace. In the end, sin, the cry, Sorry, sin, the radio, the cry, the judge, the peace. That's the cycle of this book, if you like. But that would be too kind. To say that this is a cycle is way too generous. It's essentially a spiral and a downward spiral at that. Interestingly, although Gideon does bring peace, and we see that later on, it is the last time that peace or shalom there is mentioned throughout the whole book of Judges. Let me give you a bit of context. Two weeks ago, we were in Judges again, chapter 4 and 5. We looked at Deborah and Barak. And the contrast, if you like, between that, those two characters and now Gideon is quite stark. Because they were people who had ultimate assurance of God and his purposes and his power and his love. And now what we're going to see in Gideon is uncertainty. <coughs> but throughout, the whole way throughout uh, Judges and throughout this whole period of history... We see God is steadfast, powerful, faithful in his love. And how Gideon responds should be a warning to us, but also to remind us of how we ought to respond as well. 
So if you have a look at your outline, you'll see there's three points going through, three chapters. And firstly, we're going to have a look at the covenant love of God. Secondly, the sovereign power of God in chapter 7. And then the warning comes, I guess, with Gideon and how he responds in chapter 8. And we're going to see how he forgets the love and the power of God. So let's look at those three points, three chapters. It's going to be a run. I'm sorry about that. It's a lot of words, a lot of verses. Uh, But we've heard two chapters. Read the third one when you get home. So first point, the covenant love of God, chapter 6. And it does feel slightly inevitable, doesn't it? As you look at verse 1, and do, if you like, if you were reading it and hearing this for the first time, there would be a slight groan in the audience. Have a look at it again. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's interesting that, isn't it? Because maybe they were doing okay in their own eyes. Maybe they were, they were very happily going along. And don't interpret evil as, uh, you know, as you kind of think of the most acute rebellion. The big, big thing. These guys, they could have just been going along to church just like many of us. They could have been there in home groups answering all the questions. Me, me, have, you know, I'll answer it. I, I've done my homework. They could be very generously giving to the church as well. But I guess they were daring to measure, their, if you like, their standards on, on their own merits rather than with the plumb line of God's word, as one scholar put it this week that I was reading. We must measure ourselves with the plumb line of God's word. The people are sinning. And so in verse 1, you see halfway through, God in his restoring love and justice sends in the Midianites. Here comes the raider. Uh, God sends them throughout the book. But here we know the Midianites, they're the worst of all. And you see how bad they are. It's mapped out in the following verses. Look down, scan through them. Verse 3 to 5, the exploitation, the plundering, the ravaging comes. And eventually in verse 6, there's the cry. The cry of God's people. As they, they cry out, Is it in repentance? No. It's in regret. Sin, the raider, the cry, the judge, that's what we're expecting? No, we don't get that either. What does he send? He sends a prophet, verse 8. Why? Well, because in verse 8 to 10, have a look at that. The prophet tells them why they are in the situation they are in. God doesn't send them a saviour. He actually sends them a sermon. Don't you like that? In some ways... It's exactly what the English football team need right now, isn't it? They, 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 they don't need more coaching. They certainly don't need any more money. They certainly don't need any more fame. They need someone to tell them plain and simple while the great British-English game of football is in such a dire mess. They need someone to bring reality to the situation that they find themselves in. And that's exactly what this prophet is doing. The prophet reminds them, look at it, God has brought them up out of Egypt, he's given them a land, he's told them to worship him alone, but did they listen? No. What did they do? They erected Baals themselves uh, and idols and they began to worship them. And you see the crying of verse 6 is just skin deep, isn't it? The people are regretful, but they're not repentant. And there's a massive difference. Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 7, uh, when he was writing to the church there in Corinth, he, he, he puts it this way. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. It's a very careful warning there, isn't there? 
The cry of the people here is over the consequence of their sin. It's not a cry over the sin itself. So God, does he leave them alone to just fester? No. That's in course of what they deserve, isn't it? Look at verse 11. What happens? The angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak in that place and it belonged to a certain person, Joash, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in the winepress to keep it from the plundering Midianites. And when the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, again, this is grace. They don't deserve it. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior, he says. It's a small detail uh, where God gives us a glimmer of his grace and kindness. The people, they are totally unrepentant. Yet he still commissions Gideon here. He still offers them a saviour, a judge deliverer. Even before they ever dreamed of asking for it. Which of course reminds us exactly what Christ did for us when he died on the cross. Romans Romans 5 puts it well. He says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God is initiating in his grace and his love and his kindness. God sends a prophet to explain the people, to the people what mess they are in. But he's beginning to demonstrate more and more of what his covenant love is all about for his people. And we see firstly, I think, in these verses that God's covenant love is faithful. It's just there on your points there. In verse 13, note that Gideon thinks that God has completely abandoned his people. He thinks that God has been totally unfaithful to his covenant promises. But, but is God like that? No. You might look at Gideon's response and you think, well, maybe fairly natural. They're feeling downtrodden by this huge uh, kind of Midianite army. It's wholly untrue, of course. And I guess we're like that as well. When you're going through the mill, when you're going through a difficult time of suffering, pain, whatever, sadly we can easily cry, can't we? Where is God? Where is God? Has he abandoned me? The reality here in Judges 6 is that that the people have been ignoring God. God has not gone anywhere. Rather, we see that he intervenes and he calls Gideon to lead his people. Now, this is interesting because Gideon, like all the other judges, is completely inappropriate for the task. Gideon's the youngest son of the smallest family. And today it would be like getting rid of you know, Ross McEwen. I found out his name. He's the leader of the RBS Bank. Okay, Big bank up in the city centre. It would be like saying, here's Nathan. He's been on a holiday. He's, done, he's rested well. We'll stick him. We'll get rid of this Ross McEwen guy. We'll stick in Nathan. He's the young look at him. He's a fine, upstanding man. He's ready to take on RBS. He doesn't need any more training. He's the guy. He is the guy. Thank you. Brilliant. <laughs> You can pay him later. But that would be an inappropriate illustration. It would actually be better to say, no, next slide. There's the man. George Davidson. Youngest guy, the family, you know, he's the man ready to take on RBS. Well, get rid of George. He's he's looking great there, but ready to take on the bank later. But can you imagine the conversation with Gideon? And his family. We don't hear the conversation. But can you imagine it? Oh yeah, by the way, Dad, I was down at the wine press. And uh, yeah, an angel came along and said, I'm going to be the leader of all of God's people. It's an extraordinary thing you'd love to hear, isn't it? He's down, he's called at the wine press. Obviously, he's away from the plundering Midianites down there. But God in his kindness also provides this wonderful sign uh, in verse 21. 
And he's essentially showing by that, Gideon, you're the man for the job. Trust in me. I'm faithful in my covenant love for my people. So God is is faithful to Gideon and his people. God has not abandoned them. Point. God's covenant love is faithful. Secondly, God's covenant love is exclusive. Look what God asked Gideon to do straight after that, verse 25. He, he goes, he says, go and hack, literally hack, demolish the altar that your father's made to Baal. Verse 27, we see does it at night because of fear for the people and, the, and, his, and his family as well. And what we see from this little episode, extraordinary time, is that God is not saying, oh yeah, I'm happy for my people to worship anyone or well, any way. Rather, he is utterly exclusive. There are not many roads to God, he's saying here. As Jesus said, we'll be looking at John's Gospel, I am the way, the truth, the life. Christians, I guess many of you will know, as you've been in your offices, if you've chatted with your friends, how many of you have been accused of being arrogant for having that view that Jesus is the only way to God? It's so common, isn't it? That we, God is exclusive in his, his love uh, for us and we must be exclusive in our love for him. But if it is arrogant, it's only equally arrogant to those who, who would state the opposite, isn't it? That there are no ways to God or many ways to God. In a sense, what they're asking, what they're challenging us with is a, is a sense of non-argument. In reality, though, it isn't arrogant to think that God's covenant love is exclusive, What it actually is, is a humble submission. It's a humble submission to the truths and the proofs and the promises of Jesus Christ as revealed through historical documents as we see in the New Testament. There is a way to God, absolutely. And they have been revealed kindly by God through his Son, now revealed in the Word and revealed to us by his Spirit too. The irony is, it's actually arrogant to think that we can choose any other way before God. So Gideon is called, he's called by God to tear down or to demolish. Literally the word there is to hack, to hack apart. Uh, The false way that his father erected this, this monument to Baal and to trust the true way. Gideon's name actually means a hacker. But the point is, God expects this kind of loyalty in all his followers. And that includes you and it includes me. If you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, then I hope you're welcome. I hope you've had a wonderful welcome from others around you. But I, I do want to, if you, like, if you like, make this crystal clear about what the Christian faith is really like. I hope you begin to understand more about who God is now and, and perhaps who his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what he's done for you now. I hope that's the case. But please do realise, whether you look to the God of the Old Testament or Jesus in the New Testament, both expect this kind of loyalty. A Christian is someone who's both prepared in their mind and also literally in their life to, as Gideon does here, hack off anything that would divide that loyalty between them and God. Throughout the Bible, we see that you can, you can never really walk with God, have fellowship with God, know that personal, intimate relationship with God, and the joy that comes from that, and the blessing that comes from that, until you 
meant it. Literally, hack off anything that would divide your loyalty. There are some people, and you may know them, maybe friends, maybe family. They may have been in churches for decades, and yet they live with a divided loyalty. And let me tell you, it is the most painful existence. Be warned, please, lovingly. God's covenant love is faithful. It is also exclusive. Lastly, it is patient. And so here we probably come to one of the most famous episodes of Gideon's uh, life, and that is of the, the fleeces. In verse 36, Gideon wants assurances from God, and you're quite sympathetic, aren't you? He's about to take on the Midianite army, and you think, yeah, come on, just give us a little miracle. God, show us something, put a fleece down, and the fleece is to be wet, the ground is to be dry first, and then verse 38, it's the other way around. And God very kindly, very patiently permits these tests. I guess it's a bit like Thomas, isn't it? As we've just been looking in John 20, as Jesus very kindly permits and allows him to say, hey, I've heard that you're resurrected, but I don't want to believe the word. I want to see it with my eyes. Of course, Jesus in his kindness did show Thomas, and God here patiently reveals to Gideon through the proof of this miracle that he is in this covenant of love for these people. And so we get to the end of this chapter and uh, we see that God has shown Gideon that in his covenant love he's faithful, he's exclusive, and yes, he's patient too. And God is like that. God will make sure that someone, even someone so small, someone so insignificant as Gideon, who had such little faith, God will make sure that Gideon will believe and trust in his covenant love. So God in his covenant love is wonderfully good. He is infinitely gracious. I hope you know that today. And I hope you go home reminding yourself of that throughout the week. Let's go to point two, shall we? And here we see the sovereign power of God. We get to chapter seven here. If in chapter six, what what God is doing, he's he's trying to raise the faith of Gideon uh, in God. But now in chapter seven, there's a bit of a change, isn't there? God carefully lowers the faith of Gideon in Gideon. Because he's trusting too much in himself. Now this isn't merely a demonstration of, of God's sovereign power. It's also a demonstration of his wonderful care. And it's often when people, maybe you're here today and you're lacking joy in your life. And you're lacking uh, both in life and your joy in God too. There was one day you look back six months ago and you think, I used to come to God's word and be so excited about what he's done for me. And yet you you feel very dry at the moment. Well, it's often because we've taken our gaze off God and put our gaze on ourselves. We think a bit too much of ourselves sometimes, don't we? And what God is doing here with Gideon is he's saying, hey, you need to realign your focus, mate. You need to bring it back onto me. And think less of yourself. And what God is carefully and powerfully and loving doing in this chapter is taking down uh, Gideon a few pegs in his own estimations, if you like. He needs to take his eyes off himself and fix his eyes on his Lord, on his Heavenly Father. Uh, because he's the, blessed, he's the source of all joy and all blessing. Someone once noted, I was reading just uh, this week, that... It, with relation to this story, that if you, if you put your hand in front of your face, you can actually blot out Mount Everest. 
That's possible, isn't it? Something so small and so lowly and perhaps quite grubby as well uh, can blot out something so majestic, so huge and vast. And what's happening in this chapter is essentially God is peeling away the hand to reveal the majesty of what is ahead of Gideon. And so firstly we see God's sovereign power is being made known to Gideon over the big things. First point there, over the big things. And we see that in the reduction of the troops. It's an amazing story, isn't it? They begin with 32,000 Israelite troops. But God said, verse 2, have a look at it, that's too many. That's not going to be able to display my sovereign power as much as it needs to. And so God instructs Gideon to send home any who are frightened. So 22,000 men go home. Just for a moment, imagine the conversation of the soldier that goes home explaining to his loved ones, I was just too frightened. Amazing that would be. Oh, sorry. I'm just a frightened soldier. I'm home now. But verse 4, still there's too many men. So they go down to the river for the quick drink. And we see there, God whittles it down to 300. And he chooses the ones who lap her with their hands. Now, don't read too much into the whole lapping, kneeling thing. I don't think there's much to be said there. God simply finds a way of getting it down to 300. So that he can display his sovereign power all the more. So just work out the maths. I'm sure Matt's done this already and a few other statos around. You know, there's one man in God's army to every 400 at this point of the Midianite army. And they go off to battle. Gideon would never choose these means, would you? If you were in Gideon's shoes, would you say, hey, come on, we had 32,000, but I'm happy with 300? Would you do that? No. There's nothing here of, uh, you know, kind of human strategy that would make any sense to any of us if we were Gideon. And I guess there is a warning to me and probably to many of you too. That is, I think, there's a warning to the self-sufficient. In church, I think we can do the same all too often. And I think, you know, this is quite sobering. It's hardly surprising when we've got a church full of Fairly self-sufficient people, young, hot-headed, doing well people in the world. Because I wonder, even in church, too often we look to human means, don't we? To systems, to strategy. Of course, we must be wise about how we use what God has given us. We must think carefully and plan ahead, absolutely. But how often, even in church... Can we depend on things like numbers and money and strategy above and beyond prayer and faithful dependence on God? It's a bit of a warning there, isn't it, I think? Let's get back to the story, though. God has shown his sovereign power over the big things, but now there's a small little detail. And it's a lovely story, isn't it, as Gideon comes down to the Midianite camp. God shows his sovereign power over the small things. Gideon's afraid. doesn't actually state that. But you see, God tells him, if you are afraid, go down and hear the dream of the guy in the camp and the Midian. And what does Gideon do? He goes down. He's afraid. You see that in verse 10. In verse 13 and 14, you hear, he hears the dream and the interpretation of that dream of this Midianite soldier and his friend. And Gideon goes back full of joy, doesn't he? 
You can imagine skipping back to the camp, saying, hey, look, it's amazing. God's going to bring us this victory. And what does he do? He worships God. And you're thinking of Gideon at this moment. He's a wonderful guy. He's faithful. He worships. God's going to bring the victory. But I want to just point back to you a few verses if I can. And show you how Gideon's got to this point. Go back to chapter 6, verse 14, if you can. See, God has already told him that, that he's going to bring a, a victory over the Midianites through Gideon. And then again, go to chapter 16, of, sorry, verse 16 of chapter 6. Once again, God said to Gideon, he would defeat the Midianites. And then go along, if you're just if you're not sure, Gideon, I'll just do a kind of bit of a miracle for you. In verse 21, he consumes the offering. Then you're still not sure? I'll do the fleece stuff as well if you want. Two miracles there if you want. And again, you go through to chapter 7, verse 7. And what does God say? You're going to win. Have you worked it out? There are four messages from God and three miracles from God. But in the end, Gideon is persuaded by listening to a dream of a Midianite soldier and the interpretation of his friend. Now, why is this important? Why? I guess it's because maybe you and maybe me, maybe all of us, we're a bit like Gideon in this. We're a bit slow sometimes, aren't we? And maybe just a little bit stubborn too. Are you? I don't know. But God is here very, very, very patiently Teaching Gideon about his sovereign power. Over the big things, yes, we've seen that in the reduction of the troops. Over the small things, he's just said, go down. I know you've not listened to me four times. I've done three miracles, but I'll just take you down. You can hear a dream. And that may persuade you. He's sovereign over the small things as well. But lastly, now God shows his sovereign power over the ultimate things. Follow with me, just at verse 16 through to the end of that chapter. We see this. And it is portrayed as quite an embarrassing victory over the Midianites. It's set up that way. You should cringe as you read the story, essentially. Such is the way of the battle. You wonder how the Israelites could ever think, you know, as they look back and you think chapter 8 and onwards, you you kind of think they're never, ever going to ignore God. The way that they win this battle... They're never going to turn their backs on them. They're never going to be saying, oh God, you're okay, but I'm better. No, they're not going to be doing that. They're never going to turn their backs on God and start worshipping Baal again. No, surely not. Look at the story. There's 300 men against 135,000 Midianite soldiers. Each Israelite man must have been like hundreds of metres. I don't know how big a camp of 135,000 would take. Average, again, the statos work it out, you know, work out the, then the, sort of the circumference that would be necessary and the distance of each man around of the 300 that were left holding their trumpets and their torches. But basically, you probably might not even be able to see your next man around the circumference of this camp. So there's so few of them. And they hold their torches and they blow their trumpets. And what happens? Well, the Midianites, they turn in on each other, don't they? Surely, you read it and you go, oh, surely this can't possibly happen. It's a bit of a joke. The opposition simply kind of implode on each other, don't they? But notice, I guess the point here is that notice how effortlessly God does this. 
And it's all under his sovereign power. You see, he's demonstrating his control even over this ultimate victory of the Israelites against the Midianites. In the New Testament, of course, God wins a greater victory, doesn't it? Was he, and in a sense, it was even more laughable. Uh, God puts his own son on a cross. Uh, the victory there is a dead man. And people were mocking him and laughing. But in the middle of that battle, which seems so weak, oh, Jesus is on a cross. You call that a victory? <clears throat> God implodes the enemy, doesn't he? 1 Corinthians, death is swallowed up. Brought forgiveness of sin. And life eternal. God implodes the enemy. Sovereign power of God in chapter 7, over the great things, small things, ultimate things. Now, you kind of think, very quickly now, you think... Gideon would go home, you'd think he'd be praising God, everything would be great. That's what you think would happen, but chapter 8, it's a bit of a depressing decline. Let's look at it very, very quickly. As we see, forgetting the love and power of God. Now, this chapter, I guess, is, is marked by Gideon, the man who's utterly indistinguishable from any other man. He doesn't do anything spectacularly wrong. He just seems to ignore God when he does those things. In that Gideon, he's no better than anyone else. Uh, when the people keep getting rescued, what, what, what happens? We've seen it chapter 4, verse 1, with chapter 6, verse 1 as well. They just again did evil in the eyes of the Lord. It's that repeated refrain of the book. And the point, I guess, when you get to the end of his chapter, the end of his section, is that Gideon can't save himself, let alone his people. He isn't a hero. Who's the hero of these three chapters? It's God, again and again and again. Yes, he uses Gideon in his saving, loving, sovereign plans, yes. But God's the hero. Gideon begins chapter 8 by trying to calm down the Ephraimites. Then he avenges himself with some of the groups of the people, of God's people, who, you know, they haven't been so supportive. Then he hacks down a couple of Midianite kings. Look at that in verse 12. He, he kind of is, everything that he does, there's nothing wrong with his actions before God. The problem is, God seems to be totally irrelevant to him as you go through the chapter. He doesn't think like one of God's men, he just thinks like a normal man. And previously, he'd come back from a battle, whatever it may be. He'd done God's work. And he, what would he do? As he came back from the Midianite camp with the dream, what did he do? He worshipped. He worshipped God. But we see none of that here. No, we see a bit of a turn. Look at the end verses of chapter 8, if you can, verse 22. He's asked if he wants to be king. And he knows that's in his job. And he, he responds appropriately, very wisely, in verse 23, very famous verse, but Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. He can say it, but is that what is in his heart? No. Because he sadly starts behaving like the king. He collects some goals, he creates his ephod, a priestly coat, basically. It's way beyond his role. Verse 27, he actually contributes to the fall of his people and his family. As we see, terrible word, prostituted themselves over worshipping this garment, this ephod. Verse 29, look what it happens. He says, verse 23, the Lord will rule over you. What does he do? He collects many wives for himself, many children, 70 sons. 
Lastly, he names one of his sons, my father is king. Just doesn't get much worse than that, does it? And the great sadness and the irony is that this once great hacker of idols makes an idol, the ephod. And arguably you could say he makes himself the idol. So what do we do with Gideon as we finish now? Do we look up to him as a great man of faith or do we look down upon him? Maybe something different. Because God uses and enables this great man, but a weak man. Gideon, in this story, he's not the primary focus. It's about God. God being the saviour who uses weak men like Gideon. Weak in life, weak in faith. Gideon is not the solution to the problem as you look through this story. He's actually part of the problem, as you see, mostly in chapter 8. What do we need? We need someone to come along who will not be part of the problem. We need someone to come into the world, yet not be part of the world. You know who I'm pointing to. Someone who will not fall into all the compromises that Gideon does, and we do again and again. That's why we must be so thankful that we don't have Gideon as our leader. Rather, we have Jesus Christ as our saviour. He's come into the world with full understanding of the covenant love and power of God. And he isn't part of the problem. He's the solution to our problem. Jesus doesn't give us a coat of religion as Gideon gave himself. Jesus actually gives us a brand new heart, doesn't he, as we put our faith in him. Gideon was clothed with the spirit for a job that he did. Yes, he was. But then he sadly put on a coat. He clothed himself with a coat of his own making. Christians, we've been given this new heart. We're spirit-filled, and it's not of our own making. It's a gracious gift from God, given through the death of his son on the cross. The Christian life is not sporadic like a Gideon victory. The Christian life is not an external work like the coat. It is much more wonderful. It is a transformed heart, an eternal life, because we have an eternal Lord and Saviour, and his name is not Gideon, his name is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,